Welcome to On Scene First. I'm your host, Tracy Eldridge. With over 25 years in public safety, I am wicked excited and honored to bring you entertaining, educational, and empowering conversations with public safety difference makers who are harnessing the power of out-of-the-box thinking with the latest and greatest must-have technology tools and mental health resources to save lives on both sides of the call. Before we get started, a special thank you to our premier sponsor, Rapid SOS. As a trusted public safety data partner and the creators of the world's first emergency response data platform, Rapid SOS is sharing critical data with first responders like myself to get us the information we need to save lives and property. To learn how you can become Rapid SOS ready and better protect the ones you love, visit rapidsos.com and tell them Tracy sent you. Now, on with the show. Welcome, friends. Thank you for joining me and my dear friend, Ryan Dedman, today. Ryan is currently the Outreach Director for the 911 Training Institute. As a former 911 telecommunicator and police officer, Ryan knows the importance of keeping our first responders mentally well. While Ryan may not be saving lives from within the seat anymore, he is part of the mission to save those in them. We hope you enjoy our conversation on mental health, leadership, and the importance of self and team awareness. Now let's get started. Welcome, Ryan. I appreciate you being here, my friend. Hello, Tracy. I am wicked excited you're here. Wicked excited to be here. Yeah, I say wicked once in a while. I didn't know if you knew that. Is that a New England thing? Uh, yeah. Because we don't say that in California. No, no. It's actually a Massachusetts-specific thing. And okay. and I I think... I'm pretty sure that when I speak, like on podcasts and stuff, people play a drinking game. Like they have to do a shot every time I say wicked. So. Oh, we're doing this. Oh, yeah, Does it count it. if I say it as well then? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. No, I, I really am. I'm, tr- I'm truly excited to have you here. Any opportunity that I have to speak to you is, uh, is just one that I, I truly look forward to. So, so yes. So thank you for being here first. It's my pleasure, ma'am. I'm so glad that we we finally got to connect. Things have been a little crazy in my world over the last few weeks, but starting to crawl out from under the chaos and and get podcasts started. My goal with this new endeavor thing um, with my own company on scene first is to actually put out a podcast every week versus twice a month. So we'll see how that goes. We're gonna get you there. That's my goal. You know why? Because there is a, a ton of amazing people in 911 and public safety that I want to get my hands on. Well, not inappropriately get my hands on, but you know what I'm saying, right? Yeah, it sounded kind of creepy. It sounded wicked creepy. (laughs) All right, so Ryan Dedman from California. For those that don't know you, which I don't know if it's too many people out there in 911 that don't know who you are, but if there happens to be somebody who doesn't know Ryan Dedman, from California. Tell me a little bit about yourself. How'd you get your start in public safety? How'd you end up in dispatch? And how did you, where are you today? And how'd you get there? Um, so I was um, still in college and I, I wanted a career in law enforcement and I accidentally stumbled into an internship at a local police department in the city of Anaheim, California. 
which is close to where I live. Home That's Disney. where Disneyland is. Disneyland and Sorry. Anaheim Angels, or well, Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim and the Ducks, home to Ducks hockey. So yeah, it's one of the largest police departments in the county where I live. And I got an internship and I love, I fell in love with everything law enforcement. And once the internship was done, the department hired me to be a police cadet, which is uh, like a step below police officer. And I did okay. that for a couple of years and put myself through a police academy at the time. And upon graduating the academy, I got promoted to be a communications operator, dispatcher. And, <laughs> uh, I did that for a few months at Anaheim, and then um, I left Anaheim to go to another neighboring agency to be a police officer and found out quickly that uh, that was not for me. I was not cut out for that. It just the experience was not what I thought it would be like. And so I gracefully bowed out from that agency and uh, returned to Anaheim to be a dispatcher because they were short. And I thought that's what, what? I would- A dispatch center with short uh, dispatchers? No, I know. Crazy. I thought- I thought it would be one of those jobs I, you know, I have in the meantime until I figure out what I want to be when I grow up now. And then, of course, like a lot of people in the blink of an eye, uh, almost 10 years went by. Wow. So total, I served almost 12 years in various capacities in local law enforcement here in California. Retired in 2013. And um, that is when I first met uh, Jim Marshall. Uh, Jim was... um, Uh, At the time, he was the director of the 911 Training Institute, but he was also the CEO of a nonprofit organization called the 911 Wellness Foundation. And I found out about some of the work that he and, you know, the board members and other stakeholders involved in that organization was doing to help dispatchers optimize their overall health and wellness. And I was like, man, I am all in. I put all my chips on the table and said, like, I am all in with this. Um, I want to be a part of what you guys are doing. I don't care what it looks like because I know had I had some of the skills and tools, I might still be working as a dispatcher. Ah, okay. And so I said, what can I do to help other dispatchers, you know, not feel and experience what I did? And so I, you know, started working with Jim and then (laughs) that was in 2014. And ever since, he has not been able to get rid of me. So in, 20, <laughs> in 2017, the 911 Wellness Foundation dissolved because Nina uh, absorbed a lot of the wellness projects we were working on at the time. Yep. And now, of course, Nina has this awesome wellness continuum on their website where they, they sure have resources do. and services. So uh, Nina has done a phenomenal job of carrying on that work. And then 2016, uh, let's see here. uh, That's when Jim invited me to join him at his private training company, the 911 Training Institute. And uh, currently I serve as his outreach director. Okay. So it's my job to do a lot of outreach and engagement with stakeholders in the 911 industry, as well as frontline dispatchers and leaders of all sorts um, to help further our mission as a training company. Yeah. And to like help people. So you mentioned, you know, your, your passion for this stemmed from, um, what you went through and, and why you left. So do you want to just touch on why it is that you left? Cause I think that's kind of, kind of going to kind of gear towards what a lot of our conversation is going to be about for those that know us. Right. 
Yeah, um, I had um, I had an extraordinary woman uh, early on in my law enforcement career kind of take me along with some others under her wing, and we really developed this mentoring relationship, uh, and then uh, ended up becoming not just mentor mentee, but then colleagues and peers working at the same level in dispatch. And um, she lost her life to suicide in the midst of her battle with breast cancer, which okay. she was losing. And um, upon her suicide, I did not um, address the things that I was thinking and feeling related to that at the time. Uh, I did a very poor job of handling that. And that was because, you know, if you've had, if you've heard Jim Marshall speak, you hear you hear him uh, refer to an emotional code, and I lived by an emotional code that many people in nine one one and public safety do, and it's you know suck it up. Yep. Like sometimes you have bad things happen at work in public safety. You don't always have good days, and you got to suck it up and get back in there and you know continue to fight on kind of thing. And um, that's exactly what I did. That's exactly what I did, and. Um, Years went by after her death when, um, ironically, what made all of those things resurface were handling suicide calls from the public. I bet. And uh, within the last two months or uh, within the last six months of my employment, I handled two that were the worst of my career. And, uh, you know, Anaheim is a very big, um, large, dynamic, busy city like stuff is always popping off. And so to handle suicide calls in and of itself is not at all a rarity. Um, unfortunately, those types of calls be almost became routine, if you will. Yeah, sadly, sadly, right? Because when you have that high of a call volume, these calls get mixed in and it's not like, it's, it's not like something new that you're experiencing. Right. But uh, the last these last two in particular, uh, the manner in which they were carried out, they were so similar in my mind to the way that my mentor did it several years ago that it just, you know, it, it reawoke all those thoughts and feelings. And, um, you know, in, in a moment of crisis, I, I made a rash decision to basically voluntarily resign overnight, <laughs> <laughs> and, which is what I did. Uh, you know, I, I told the supervisor, you know, late at night, I was like, you know what, like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. And, you know, the city HR um, had offered me short-term disability as um, a solution to address my crises, if you will. Uh, but that wasn't going to be a long-term solution in my mind. Right. And so I, I declined that. And I said, you know, if, if this is all I'm going to get out of it, like, I, I need a break from this work. And I felt like the only way I was going to get a break was to, to call it good for now. So it, the good thing was that I, I think I feel like I made a decision that was best for me at the time. Yep. It, I mean, it's definitely what I needed. Um, however, the manner in which I did it, you know, I, I often think about there are other ways I could have done it to where maybe the outcome would be different now. And I might possibly still be a dispatcher because I know you miss working that side of 911 just as much as I do because the job in and of itself, you know, it, it almost becomes part of our very nature. Um, so I, I miss it. 
Um, and I wish I were still a dispatcher, but I'm not. And so now, you know, thankfully to people like Jim Marshall and others in my life, I've, I've been afforded the opportunity to do a lot of amazing, wonderful things on the other side, right? Which is what yep. you call it, yep. helping yep. people now on, on the other side so that they don't experience what uh, you and I had to. Yeah. So for those that are just tuning in that just kind of found us, um, my history, I, I wouldn't say similar, but I had to leave the 911 center after 20 years because of PTSD. My PTSD was actually caused a little bit differently. I had some leadership that was uh, not actually the best fit for me and had created kind of this hostile work environment, which ultimately led to uh, some some band-aids being ripped off of, of old trauma wounds that kind of opened up Pandora's box. With that, having to leave the job that I loved, I held on to a lot of anger. Like mm-hmm. I was very angry and I'm not an angry person. Those of you that know me, like, you know, I'm very, I, I try to be very positive and, and uplifting and encouraging and empowering and, and it, who I became was not the person that I was, not at all. And you talked about your path kind of colliding with Jim Marshall at the time. And you're like, I'm in, I'm, I'm in 100%. And, and I'm going to just say, you did exactly what you were supposed to do. My dear friend, Rosa Ramos sent me a message today. And uh, she said, I see you struggling. Uh, which, which I am like, I'm, I'm still here. I'm still moving forward because there's people that need stuff, but this, this helps me help myself. And she said, she said what you just said not to do. Like, she's like, I see you struggling. Don't make any big decisions right now. Like that was her, that was her lifeline. Like she just threw that out there. Like, like whatever you do, don't make any decisions because I think when we get to that point, it's, it's like, you just want the pain to stop. Right. And sometimes we don't want to talk about the things where people get to that mindset that, that they feel like their only solution is to not be here anymore. Right. So I think, I think while you can look back on when you made the decision that for you, it might not have been the best decision, but I'm going to tell you, I'm glad you made that decision because if you didn't make that decision, I would not have gotten a friend request from you or, or a connection on LinkedIn. Right. Well, it, I mean, it was definitely the right decision. It's just the way I did it, um, I think, could have been handled a little differently. But, and, you know, with, with you, I also had a prior PTSD diagnosis and had to go through months of counseling and this is the beautiful thing we should talk about really quick too, is, you know, you and I both are the recipients of relief that EMDR has provided us. 100%. And, and it's funny because the person that you aligned yourself with, Jim Marshall, is the person who I will forever put right up there with, with helping to save my life. And I, back in 2016, when I was in this place, like, do I leave? Do I stay? Do I, like, what do I do? I'm not well. I was, I was the carpenter whose house wasn't finished. I was teaching 911 folks across the country with the public safety group, a class called How to Save a Life, Yours. And uh, it was teaching them how to take better care of themselves. We talked about PTSD, but I was smack dab in the middle of it with blinders on. And at the time where I was at my lowest of low, I I was in um, the comm center manager class 
that was put on by Fitch and Associates. Amazing journey for me through that class. There were two things that I took out of there years later, because when I was in that place, I did not have the bandwidth to accept what Jim was saying. I, I heard, like I was listening in the class, he was talking about EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing. And as he was talking in my mind, I was thinking like, oh, all right. It sounds like some type of magic juju, hocus pocus. Like mm-hmm. it didn't sound like something where I was like, oh yeah, let me run right out and do that. It wasn't until almost two years later when the tools that I had in my toolbox were not were no longer working. And I reached a point of desperation where I needed to get that help. And I said, you know what? I think I'm going to look into this EMDR thing. I found an amazing therapist that that does it. And I just have to share this funny story because I always joke about my like inability to pay attention to detail and like focus on things. And so when we started, I walked into the therapist and I said, all right, here's the deal. I've been doing talk therapy for years and years and years. And while it has been helpful in some things, it, I, I need more and I want to start EMDR. I don't want to like, I don't want to rehash my whole entire life story because it's a lot. So can we just jump right in? And she's like, well, we got to, we got to establish a few ground rules. Right. And once we started doing it, she was, she was moving a light back and forth in front of my eyes. And I literally looked past her and I'm like, I love that vase. And she just shook her head and she's like, oh, you're one of those. And I'm like, what, what, like, what did I do? So she pulls this thing out of her drawer and it was actually, um, two vibrating paddles that I would put in my hand, one in each hand and my bilateral stimulation, um, was now moved from my eyes following her to the vibration going back and forth in my hand. Cause apparently I couldn't focus on the light. <laughs> I will tell you after the first, the first session, after one session, I'm like, all right, I don't, I mean, I felt a lot. It brought up a lot. It was a little scary, but I was like, all right, I'm, I got to figure out like, can I, did this work? And I, I went home and I'm driving home and I'm trying to think of the person who we processed that night, who had caused a lot of problems for me in this, this whole thing at work. And, uh, I could, I couldn't feel anything. And to me, that was it was scary, but it was a relief that when I pictured him or thought of him, it no longer brought up the emotion and the anxiety and the the physical response. Did you find that that was the same for you? Yeah, uh, my relief was also um, immediate. And I, it sounds silly, but the best way I can liken to it is, you know, carrying around a backpack full of bricks. And like EMDR helps you set that backpack down and you can imagine what it's like after a long hike or walk with that backpack on, like how it's going to feel to take that thing off. And EMDR, you know, is, is just one, um, many forms of therapy. And you talked about talk therapy, like cognitive behavioral therapy, and there's other processes that can help, but um, EMDR is our recommended form of treatment for dispatchers, 911 professionals, um, and then other public safety professionals as well, who've been exposed to handling critical incidents that involve trauma. Yep. 
And it that bilateral stimulation helps activate both hemispheres of your brain so that now you reprocess the event to which you have been exposed so that you think about it differently. So, you know, I, just like you, um, had no preconceived notions about EMDR, which is funny because I have, you know, a postgraduate education in psychology. So I know this stuff <laughs> because I've read about it in textbooks, right? But there's a whole uh, different experience from words on a page to now. And just, and just so you know, that living. makes you wicked smart. Oh, there it is again. Hey, cheers. Salud. <laughs> you know, that specialized therapeutic process helps your mind reprocess these things. And, you know, let's be clear. It's not so that you forget it. Right. It's just so that you think about it differently. And when you think about it differently, it does not re-invoke all of those mm, feelings and thoughts that you experienced in the moment of time it was happening. I think the way that I, so the, one of the ways that I describe it in, in all of my classes, or if I'm having a conversation with somebody is it separates the emotion that is attached to the event. And then therefore, when a similar situation or event takes place, it no longer carries that same charge. Right. And, and I, and, and you made a great point too, is I had somebody come up to me after a class that I did, um, actually last year, well, of course it was last year cause we haven't been traveling, but, um, I, it might've even been two years ago now, but she heard my story. She was struggling and she came up to me. It was actually after the class, not after the class. It was like out in, in the conference area um, and asked if she could talk to me. And she said, I want to look into the EMDR, but I think part of my issue is I, I lost my young daughter and I don't want to forget about her. Mm. And it was very like, you just, you, you just touched on that, right? It's like, it's, it doesn't erase what happened. It just doesn't make it such a charged event anymore where, you know, uh, you hear something similar, you see something similar. I mean, I've through EMDR, I have actually realized that there were triggers for things. So for those that are not aware, triggers are basically, you know, something that pops up, whether it's a sight, a smell, a sound, anything, right? A feeling, right? That pops up. And then now all of a sudden you're off to the races. And what I mean by that is like the, the gates open and you're running hundred miles an hour and you don't know where you got to go. You just got to go somewhere and the anxiety starts and the legs tapping starts and the respiratory rate goes up. And now you're barking at people. And I mean, I, I came home from an event one time and my poor husband sitting on the couch eating watermelon. And I just looked at him with this disgust on my face. And I'm like, what are you eating? And he's like, watermelon. And I'm like, it sounds like you're eating a bucket of bolt. <laughs> <laughs> and it, and he wasn't, right? And it's like, so all of my senses are now in overdrive. And I texted my therapist and I'm like, hey, because uh, I know the difference now. And, and, and I'm going to ask you this question too, is do you know the difference between eh, I'm just having a bad day and I'm tired and cranky versus, oh, uh, something triggered. This is a trigger response. So I've learned through all of this what a trigger response is versus I'm just being crabby. And I texted her and I said, look, I'm, 
I'm, I'm, I'm not in a good place. Do you have any appointments that are open? And she's like, yeah, I just had somebody cancel at seven o'clock tonight. Can you come? And I'm like, yep. And I'm coming in hot. Well, what I found out through that EMDR ap appointment was there was something that happened throughout the day. It was a visual trigger that I had no idea was a trigger. It led me down this path to identify something else that had happened in my life that I had 100% blocked out. So once I was able to process that, that particular thing no longer became a trigger for me. I could see it. I could touch it. I could look at it and, and nothing. So did you find that you are able to better tell what the triggers are versus like, or not necessarily what the triggers are, but the different feeling between something that triggers you and something not? Yeah. And it also takes an incredible amount of just self-awareness uh, and knowing thyself and the things that can trigger you and set you off and having then the tools in place to reset your psychophysiology so that you don't experience all that symptomology of feeling amped up and anxious and all of the other things that you described. There's things that you can strategically do um, and lifestyle changes you can make in order to address that when it does happen. And you know, people don't like change, right? So, oh, yes, I know. And <laughs> dispatchers, especially, right? We don't, they don't like change, but uh, I think it's, it's necessary for your personal uh, mental health and wellness in order to do this, because that's going to ensure career longevity. Right. Who wants to burn out after five years in the industry? We all want to reach that 30 year mark. Um, and by doing these things is going to help you successfully reach that. And when you do, you're going to feel better uh, living at the end instead of feeling like you crossed the finish line and now you're going to collapse. Right. And, and so you and I did a um, kind of like a live broadcast uh, a few months ago and I'll Put the link to the recording in in the show notes so folks can go back and see it if they want um but the title of the session was from peace out to peace within making you know peace with your decision to leave the 9 center again you just hit the nail on the head we're not encouraging folks to walk out of the center uh but if it does come to that like i knew a lot of people will ask me the question and i know they ask you and we do talk about it on that that broadcast is when do you know? Oh my, I cannot Your tell favorite you. Favorite question, right? When do you know it's time to go? You know what? And just like you, whenever I get done teaching a class or speaking at a conference, the number of people who come up to me afterwards and ask that question or some form or fashion of it, yeah, right? Yeah. And, uh, you know, the, there's no easy answer to that. It's like, I can't, I cannot answer that for you. I can only share my personal experience yep. and maybe by me and you, Tracy, sharing your experience, it will help give other people insight into a decision that they feel like they can make is best for them. Right. What we don't want is people feeling uh, tired, exhausted, and burned out and having the feeling of, you know what, you can take this job and shove it, right? whatever the reason. Like that's not what we want people to do. 
And so helping, helping them realize what it is that's making them feel like that will then help them strategically develop a path to address that. And if the ultimate decision is still at the end to resign or retire for whatever the reason, then okay, at, at least you've done the work uh, to address the problem instead of just throwing stuff up in the air and saying, I'm out of here, deuces which yep. is your peace out, right? Yep. And that is kind of, that is basically the decision that I made. So my rash decision in a moment of crisis was, you know what? I'm tired of this. I don't feel like, I don't feel like it's going to change. I don't feel like I'm getting any help here. I need a break. And the only way I'm going to get a break is by resigning. So see ya. <laughs> and And it's funny because I was, I'm going to say I'm kind of, well, sort of kind of the opposite where, for three years, I stayed there. So this boss had kind of turned on me who had been my biggest fan for like ever. So that was really hard. It, this was somebody who was super supportive of me, super proud of me, you know, really encouraged me and then turned on a dime and became this like a dog with a bone, right? A very hungry dog with a bone. And he wasn't, he wasn't letting up in it. And then even though he left, he continued the, the, the current board of selectmen at the time, um, had continued this kind of hostile work environment behavior towards me, et cetera. And I did put tools in place. I, I started exercising more and I went to therapy and I'm, you know, I'm paying out a $15 copay twice a week. And, um, when it got to a place where all of the, I went on medication, right? So all of these things, I'm putting all these tools in place to go, all right, I don't want to leave. I don't want to leave. But as I keep coming home, you know, every other day and I'm in tears and, and I couldn't walk into the town hall and I feel like I'm going to throw up and, and, you know, all of these physical symptoms. And, and at some point it was like, what am I doing? What am I doing? And, and it, an opportunity presented itself. Um, I came home this one day. So mine, mine was kind of like, I'm done, but I had done I had done all the work that I thought I was going to be able to do. And, and I made the decision to leave and I put it out there and I started making phone calls. And I think once I did that, somebody else's plan started to go into effect, right? It was like, ah, finally, finally, you know, you, you made the right decision. And then an amazing opportunity with rapid SOS revealed itself. Everything's been so amazing over the last four years. And now here I'm being led to to just be able to not only have the podcast where we can talk about these important topics with, with my own company on scene first, but also be able to teach people how to be better leaders and to teach people how to take better care of themselves, which is, you know, truly a passion of both of ours. And I think that's how we connected originally, right? Like I kept showing up on your LinkedIn feed, like... <laughs> <laughs> that <laughs> that is how we connected because you ha you have always been uh, very active on platforms of social media and I think it was it was LinkedIn <laughs> first. It was LinkedIn first. And I swear to you, every day I would go on to LinkedIn and uh, look at stuff or post stuff. I would see LinkedIn suggesting me to <laughs> go like and connect with Tracy Eldridge. And I'd like check out your profile and be like who the hell is Tracy Eldridge and why is LinkedIn telling me to connect with her? 
And every day you're popping up in my feeds and Tracy posted this, Tracy posted this, Tracy says this. I'm like, oh my God, I can't stand it. So to mute it all, I'm just going to send her a connection request. But the funny thing was like, you were even at that time in like 2014, 2015, I think is when we first connected, like 2015, you were posting a lot of stuff back then about, uh, you know, mental health challenges that 911 professionals were facing and things that they needed to do in order to address those challenges. Because they say, I mean, and and it is, you know, another, my friend Joyce that messaged me the other day and she's like, you know, let's try to get you somewhere where you're helping people. And, and it is true when you're helping other people, it truly does make your struggles easier. Um, but are there times that I fall down? Yep. I literally like December 24th, I fell down, like rolled over. There was a bus that drove over me and then it backed up again and all that stuff. But the difference between who I was four years ago when I actually left my center and the person I am today is staying down is not an option. Yeah. It's just, it's just not an option for me because I have been blessed to have an opportunity to be a platform for folks. You know, the on-scene first brand for me, my, my, uh, I don't know, I joke, like my, my catchphrase, my motto or whatever is saving lives on both sides of the call uh, because we talk about new technology and the exciting things that are coming to, to you know, help save the caller. Um, but a little of that might be a little bit selfish because I know that when the caller has a better chance, so does the telecommunicator that's taking that call, right? So my heart will always be to to support that telecommunicator and, you know, make sure they're well. And I know you do the same. You know, I got to two years ago, I got to finally see you speak. Like our past, like literally, cross here, cross here, cross there, cross there. And we were finally in the same place at the Georgia Emergency Communications Conference. I got to see you speak. I was, I was blown away. I, I, I knew you were a great speaker, but, and I'm sure you hear this. It's like, he's talking to me. He's like, he's talking right to me. And in that moment, like you were talking about the number scale. And I, I, I need to talk about this because I think it's so important in checking in with our folks that I brought that out of that session with me. And dude, I give you all the credit in the world. Tell me about the number scale that you shared with folks in that session and the importance of not just accepting I'm fine. Let's start there. Why isn't it good to hear from people there? Fine. Because that's so often the answer that 911 professionals give uh, after taking care of business. Yep. Uh, you handle that that hot pursuit, shots fired, fight in progress. You know the the most high priority critical incidents you can think of in public safety, and dispatchers do a phenomenal job of rolling up our sleeves and getting work done. And then afterwards. We ask each other, okay, how are you doing? And the answer is always, I'm fine. I'm fine. And so then I start, and so then I started thinking because uh, at the time I was working with a couple of coworkers doing another job, and uh, they are polar opposite personalities. One is the extroverted, smile on her face, happy, bubbly, and the other um, has a severe uh, case of RBF, uh, just <laughs> just like I do. <laughs> 
And I found that when I asked them the question, hey, how are you? The answer was the same. Mm -hmm. Happy Bubbly would say, I'm fine. And the RBF would also say, I'm fine. And in my brain, I'm like, okay, well, that doesn't add up because when I look at you, the visual presentation does not match the words that are coming out of your mouth to describe your state. Right. And so then I thought I started thinking about uh, mental health professionals and healthcare professionals. So mental health professionals and healthcare professionals use a number scale to help um, them decipher where a patient or a client is on a continuum scale of care. Yep. So if you've ever thought about um, making a visit to your emergency room because you're in whatever type of pain, you get there and you know the nurses and doctors, healthcare professionals come alongside and say, okay, what's wrong? And I don't know, I'm in a lot of pain and it hurts really bad. And so then their next question is, okay, well on a scale of one to 10, like how much pain are you in? Because that's going to help us uh, better quantify like what kind of attention and service we need to give you. Because if you're a two, that's not the same as feeling like an eight. Now, see what I get out of that is I want to pick the face on the little happy face, sad face scale, right? Mm -hmm. So your numbers, your task and results, and I'm not some people like I like the little faces. So maybe we need to add this with little faces in dispatch. So you need to add those little faces in dispatch. <laughs> So I, I tried to take I tried to take that number scale and apply it to a 911 and I started doing it in training classes that I do for supervisors because you know a, a popular question I get from supervisors and different types of classes I teach for them is well we want to we want to connect with our people and we want to make sure that we're there as leaders for our people um, how do we do that because we as leaders do a great job of taking care of all of the logistical challenges, but what about like our people, our dispatchers? Yep. They say, you know, we go ask our dispatchers after handling the crisis, like, hey, how are you doing? And the answer is right, I'm fine, I got this, I'm okay. And say, okay, well, let's try to ask them the same question, but differently. And maybe by them putting it on that number scale, it will provide you a better uh, quantitative continuum of where exactly they fall on the scale. So instead of asking, hey, how are you doing? You put that on a number scale and have them attach a numeric value to it uh, because you could be fine and you could be a two. Right. Feeling like crap. Or you could be fine and you could be an eight feeling right. like, hey, this is great. But the the word descriptor fine doesn't do it like the numeric value does. Or and I'm so, okay, right? So fine, okay. Fine, I'm okay, good. all right, good. All of those things have just become customary words of greeting used right. in passing. Right. And it provides it provides really uh, zero qualitative analysis in regards to that person's actual state. Because when you and I pass in the hallway as coworkers, I'm going to give you the little head nod and be like, what up, Tracy? How are you? And your answer is going to be good. Ryan, how yep, are you? I'm fine. And yep. I'm going to be like, I'm great. Thanks. And you and I pass and we continue on our way. They're, yep. they're just customary greeting words that we use in, in passing. And so that number scale is meant to better help people gauge uh, where their uh, subordinates or coworkers, colleagues, and peers are. Because if you find out that, you know, your peer is feeling like they're a three after handling whatever type of incident, 
then maybe you know there's some things now you need to strategically do to come alongside them and provide them with some follow-up care and assistance as necessary because you're going to know that now. And right. maybe maybe they can't even put into words how they're feeling. That's right. the other thing is that if you ask me how I'm feeling, I can, I can remember when, when I was in my moment of crisis, like I can't tell, I can't find the words to describe how I'm feeling. I know that I'm tired and I know that I feel exhausted, but that even those words don't do it justice. But if you ask me to put a number to it, I'd tell you I'm a two or a three. Right. And I had to laugh in that session. So um, I was sitting next to my coworker, Frank, when we were watching the session and you were doing kind of role play with somebody in the class and you're like, um, you know, hey, how, you know, how are you on a scale of one to 10? What are you? And they gave like an eight or a nine or whatever, you know, it's a great day, we're not at work, all that. And then, and then you're like, and, and ask me, ask me, ask me how I'm doing. And I remember as soon as the, they all the, said like, they all said like seven or eight. They all said seven or eight. And then it was hilarious because I leaned over to my coworker and I said, I'm a three trapped in a tens body. And he just looked at me and no sooner did I say that the same exact words came out of your mouth. You're like, I'm a three, but you see a 10. And I'm just like, and that's, and that is right. There is the learning moment. Right there. Because yep. When I was up there speaking, I was, you know, giving, I think the opening keynote in that session at GECC. Yeah. And there's probably two or 300 dispatchers attending that conference that year. Yeah, it was big. And so, you know, you, you gotta, you bring a lot of energy and charisma and, you know, I'm up front in front of people like smiling, shaking hands, meeting people, singing and dancing. And I got the show to put on, you know, and so it looks like, it yep. looks like I'm a nine or a 10. It looks yep. like you are a nine or a 10 when you are delivering sessions, yep. like you bring that your life's energy to your work. So the learning moment is that, oh, wow, he's a three. Like we never would have pegged him as nope. a three because that's not what he looks like right now. And isn't that exactly what we do in 911? Yep. Because we put on we put on the mask and we put on the facade to make it look like like we're fine when in reality on the inside we know that we're not and no. we need a minute. No. And so then, and I, then the point the the point takeaway is is there anything wrong with Ryan and Tracy being a 3? And the answer is well in and of itself no. Now, when you find that out, are there things that you might do differently in your interaction with Ryan and Tracy, knowing that they are a three instead of the 10 that you thought they were? And the answer should be, well, yes. Yeah. And the, fir and the first thing that comes to my mind is now that pass in the hallway, now we stop and hey, you know, what's going on? Is there is there anything that I can help with? Like it opens up a dialogue. And I think what happens too is sometimes people do it like if 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 we got into more of a habit of doing this and saying, you know, where are you? It at least opens up the dialogue, but it also gives you a red flag to say, all right, look, I I'm, we've had a conversation about this. Hopefully you're feeling a little bit better. Are you still, you know, a two? Or, are you still a three? And, and if they are, it's like, all right, well, maybe we need to take this a little bit further. But if they're like, oh, I feel so much better. Like I just needed to talk about it. But now it's going to make you consciously aware and go, you know what? I'm going to check in on Ryan tomorrow 
uh, in next week and, and maybe a month from now, because you just indicated to me that you were struggling with something and there's days that I'm a three and it's okay because I just needed a mental break. I just needed to check out for a little while. I just needed to, you know, shed, if you will, the, the persona of somebody who's positive all the time. You know, somebody said to me the other day, again, yeah, over the, over these last few weeks, I've, I've had a lot, a lot of heavy things that backpack for me this last month has been extremely heavy, but what I also do is I share that and I share it with folks to say, you know what, right now things aren't so great, but I had a good day today and maybe tomorrow might not be the best, but I know the importance of, of sharing. And then on one of the posts I had talked about, like, you know, somebody said, you're brave to, to show people that side of you. And I said, sometimes I feel like I'm too much, like, like, cause I share my feelings, but if it's that one person that says, you know what, I was a little bit braver because you seem to have your stuff together, but you also fall down once in a while. Like, I think that's huge is to show folks like, yeah, you deal with heavy stuff, you know, and, and this, this doesn't, it's not a flick of a switch. It's not like, oh, I had a bad call. I'm going to get PTSD. Um, so I'm just going to prepare for it now. It's, it's all of a sudden you're, you're snapping at people you're sleeping a lot or you're not sleeping at all. You're walking into work with big bags under your eyes. You're not doing your job as well as you used to be. Right. And everything that you just described is in essence, peer support. Yeah. Uh, it's just, it's organic peer support, um, which has largely become a, a lot of my life's mission now and the work that I do with Jim Marshall and helping 911 professionals and agencies build these teams of people who are now more proactively doing everything you just described yeah. to make sure that their coworkers, you know, are, are being checked in on after critical incidents that can significantly impact operations as well as personal wellness. I think it's really important. And, you know, and, and then there are like, so I, I had mentioned earlier in the podcast that in that CCM class I took, there were two profound um, life-changing tools that were taught to me. So the first was EMDR, but again, didn't have the bandwidth to process it. Once I was able to sit down and, and really tackle it, it, it saved my life. There's no, there's, there's no question about it for me. Um, but the other thing was DISC and the DISC personality, behavioral, you know, profile assessment, whatever folks are calling it has been a huge impact for me is just to look at like who people are. Now, Hi. and hold and hold that thought right there, because I want you to talk more about that, because a lot of people probably aren't familiar with what DISC is. Yeah. So as a personality inventory self-assessment type of test, a lot of people probably hear of, you know, like the MMPI or, or something like that. But I saw you do a presentation on DISC at the APCO International Conference yes. two years ago now. Yeah. And it's probably one of the best sessions I have ever seen because the way you took that, I thought, Tracy, what, <laughs> Tracy, God, God bless you, Tracy. But like, what in the world does this have to do with 911? But the way you took that and related it to 911 and other fields of public safety was extraordinary. It was so powerful. Thank you. Thank you. And I, 
I became passionate about it because at a moment where I was in crisis um, due to dealing with some pretty strong D dominant driven uh, doer personalities that tend to steamroll over me as an extroverted people person, I was blown away. I, I, I attended, so I attended the CCM class where we learned about DISC and it was like, oh, here's your letter. It's like, yeah. So, so yeah. So what is, what is DISC? What is it? If you look at a circle and you put a D and I and S and a C in all four quadrants of the circle, you cut it up on the, the two letters on the top of the circle are D and I. Okay. And if you drew a line across the middle and the two on the top, the D's and the I's, they're extroverted people, right? They have no problem getting up and talking in front of people. They're usually loud, you know, they're, they're, they're doers and influencers, et cetera. And then on the bottom part of the circle, you yeah. have- Where's the, my S and C folks? The S's and the C's, <laughs> um, and I go in order, right? So the S's and the C's on the bottom half of the circle are more reserved. They're, they're not going to, they're not going to be the center of attention. They're not going to be talking at the board meeting. They're going to be quietly sitting behind, you know, the folks that are being loud and kind of taking over the, the, the meeting or whatever. And then if you take a line and draw it down the middle of the circle on the right side of the circle, you have the I's and the S's. So you have an extroverted people person and an introverted people person. So the folks on the right side, those letters that are now on the right side, those are the people people. And then on the left side, the D and the C, those are the tasks and results driven person. And one of the things that I like to kind of explain is I know this is going to come as a big shock, but I am an extroverted people person. Say what? Yes. Right. That's, that's wicked. That's wicked crazy. No, I, so, but I am also, so I refer to myself, I am a high I personality, which is an extroverted people person, but my S, which is an introverted people person is also extremely high. So I am actually an introverted, extroverted people person. So that means that you will literally see all of my emotions. You'll see when I'm happy. You'll see when I'm sad. You'll see... I'm going to care for people. For me, it's people, 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 people first. And then the task stuff is very low on my agenda, right? And the, the folks on the task side, the Ds and the Cs, they don't really show a lot of emotion. They don't show a lot of emotion, nor do they love to see a lot of emotion. Like I joke, my daughter, Amanda, out in California, um, she's a travel nurse. So she is on the side where she doesn't love the crying and like the emotion. Like I joke that if I was to start crying in front of her, she's going to be the person that has a broom and she's like patting me back on the back on the broom being like, they're there. Like, ew, this is icky. I don't, I don't like emotion. Um, but then me, if you started crying, like I'm going to be down on the floor with you curled up in the fetal position, hugging you. Right. So I do think it's important to talk about people's personalities in an aspect. So I'm doing uh, right now, I'm doing a, a contract with an agency in West Virginia where we have assessed all of their people. So I'm going to take all those people and I'm going to put them on a little chart 
And then I'm going to go, here's all your people, but I'm also going to teach them who's who, what motivates, what demotivates, and then the wellness component, right? This D or this C, they're not necessarily going to be open to communicating about emotion. So you have to have that understanding. You have to have a base understanding. But then if you come up to me as an I or an S, I might show you a lot of emotion. So knowing who your people are is really the foundation of not only a well-run center, but a well-run wellness peer support initiative. Don't you think? Absolutely. And I remember sitting in your session next to a friend of mine who is a uh, manager for an agency in Colorado and her jaw nearly hit the floor (laughs) as you were talking about this stuff, because she realized at that moment, exactly what you just said, this is going to help me better know my people. And it's not so that, you know, see, here's the misconception is that like, Oh, to better know my people, like I have to be BFFs with everyone I work with. Right now. Okay. No, we know that's not going to happen. Yeah. Right. But there are some strategic skills that you can use and implement in order to gauge, you know, how your people are doing and how they're responding, especially after stuff hits the fan yep. and you get done taking care of whatever, whatever, now dealing with all of the aftermath that you do specifically as a leader with uh, employee relations and navigating some of those challenges as necessary, like having that as a tool um, as a leader, I mean, that, that's got to be invaluable. Leadership in a 911 center is by far the most important aspect when it comes to wellness. How people are treating their people is, is the foundation of everything, right? And if you are a D or a C personality, you know, you're a D, you know, you're a C. And if somebody comes into your office and they're crying and it makes you feel uncomfortable or awkward or makes you feel a certain way about that person because they're too sensitive or too emotional, it is an ignorance, right? So I, in the sessions that I do on this, in the assessment education and training that I do on this, I have a way to explain to folks how you should be understanding these people. And the last thing you want is to be at odds with your people, right? So if it makes me, if it makes you uncomfortable that I'm emotional and sensitive, here's what I'm going to say. Get over that, right? <laughs> you, you, you do, you have to get over it. And then the same t- side is when D's and C's were very short with me or steamrolled over me or, um, you know, didn't take my feelings or, you know, sensitivity level into account. Now there's a difference between being a jerk face and just kind of doing you right. What I learned from that is, is I'm going to change how I behave based on who you are. And a friend of mine had said, Yeah, but okay, I get that you're loving this and this is cool and all that stuff and you think it's really important. However, why do I have to change who I am to accommodate you? I shouldn't have to change who I am to accommodate anybody. And my response was, I'm not changing who I am. I'm changing how I behave. Two very different things, right? Disc assessment tool is definitely one of the things that uh, 
could potentially change the entire culture of the 911 industry. Yep. And it, and like you said, it, it starts with, uh, it starts with leaders because we know dispatchers across the country who do the exact same job, same duties and responsibilities under different leadership yep. and who thrive at very different levels just because of who the leader is at the center or agency where they serve. The emotions are hard enough. So to have somebody who is in a leadership position that has such an awesome responsibility to take care of their folks, if you're treating your people poorly, if you don't care about them as people first, you shouldn't be doing the job. I said what I said. I'm not condoning that at all, but I think what we also have to remember is that certain people in leadership now they had a very different experience with their leaders when they were frontline dispatchers several yeah. years ago. It was a different attitude, a different mindset, a different culture no altogether. Wellness. And now what we're asking them to do is basically flip the switch and do yeah. a 180. And that's, that um, is not fair um, right. to them. And it's demanding that they do that because I think it it invalidates everything that they experienced. And they say, well, wait a minute. When, you know, when I started my 911 career 20 years ago, let me tell <laughs> you a story about what I experienced in training with my yeah. CTO or my supervisor or manager and director. And so now that I'm that person, <clears throat> it's the same. Because I don't know any. Well, that's what you. That's what you were so taught. I, I think yeah. we have to. Be, we, have, we have to be. We have to extend grace uh, to those people uh, because it's not fair to them uh, that we just demand these things um, from them without giving them the right. knowledge and skills and tools that they need in order to successfully. And I think so to go back. We can't just wag our finger and say, hey, we as dispatchers, you know, we need this, this, and this from you as the leader at our center. Well, you know, there has to be more to that communication as um, a body of people working together than than just the demands made for personal reasons. And I think disk assessment is one of the things that will help leaders, you know, navigate those challenges. I, and I agree. And, and and that is why I'm bringing this to the 9-1 space. Why? Because I know what it did for me. I can imagine what it would have done for me in my 9-1 center. I mean, I can't even tell you. I've been teaching, I've been teaching the class, um, if they are the problem, why do I have to change for about two years now? So shortly after I came out of the first class, so two years, I've been, I've been preaching this across the U.S. every opportunity I, I can. Um, and I can't even tell you how many people reach out to me after the class, if it's virtual or in the class that are like, this explains a lot. Yeah, but you know, the, the flip side of the coin, what I also love about DISC though too, is it also invokes a high degree of self-accountability. Yeah. Um, because it also, it also, when I did it um, and you gave me the report findings on me, I remember reading through it and how insightful it was and now shedding light for me on who Ryan is. How can I be so judgmental and demand so much of others when I don't even know like right. thyself? And knowing that also provides the accountability in what is needed for me to check in on my coworkers yep. too. So it's it's like it's the 
comprehensive coin involving both sides, not not just giving leaders a tool to check in on their people, but then also helping the people know who they are themselves. Um, because now Tracy knows that, you know, she is the extroverted people person. And so when she strolls into work and is feeling like you just described, now you're self-aware to know that I'm having a little bit of an yeah. off day. Let me do some further introspective investigation and see if I can find out why. Yep. And is it like, like you said earlier, is it just because I'm having a, eh, a crummy day or did I just experience some type of sensation now that is becoming a, a trigger? Or is it my high S just withdrawing a little bit? Because if you look at who I am in my disc assessment, I'm a high IS. Those are, they're both people driven, but one's an introvert and one's an extrovert. So is this normal behavior for me? Um, when people say, oh, they're moody. Well, maybe not that maybe they're, they might not be moody. It, it just might be who they are. Right. So now you're putting a negative label on somebody that can turn around and cause all kinds of other issues. Yeah. And disc is no different than my number yeah. scale. Right. Is there anything wrong with you and me being yeah. a three? No. Is there anything wrong with someone being a D no. and I and S like, no, that's an integral part of who that person is by their nature. All these wicked, awesome tools in the toolbox. We do have to wrap it up. I know how, you know, we get going and we can talk and talk and talk. We have so many amazing things to you say. Days. For days. But Ryan, I just want to say thank you so much for being here. I always love our conversations. I also want to say thank you for what you're doing in the 911 space. Um, you are a huge huge staple. And, and I know that we have a lot of stuff coming up to, to, to work on together and, and, and just make a difference out there. So thank you, my friend. You're amazing. Oh, thank you. The uh, pleasure is always entirely mine, ma'am. <laughs> All right. We will see you when we see you hopefully soon. Thank you for listening. Make sure you join us next time for another episode of entertaining, educational, and empowering interviews with public safety difference makers. Please like and follow me on social media at On Scene First with Tracy Eldridge so you too can keep up with my shenanigans. Thank you, heroes, from the bottom of my blessed heart. Stay safe, stay strong, and stay here. We need you. For more information on Rapid SOS, our premier sponsor, and how you can get connected to the world's first emergency response data platform and better prepare and protect your family and community, visit rapidsos.com today.